Hey guys, it's Chris Agos from For All Mankind and Chicago PD and plenty of commercials that you know and love. And this is the Man Cave Chronicles. Stick around. Welcome to another episode of the Man Cave Chronicles. Welcome to the party, pal. You're my boy, boo. Yo, Adrian. I with interviews of amazing guests from the world of pop culture. Oh, yeah. TV. Nice. Movies. Oh, I love the movies. Comedy and more. From deep inside the man cave, your host, Elias. Chris, uh, welcome to the cave. Hey, man. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. How are you? What's new with you? What's new? Uh... Well, gosh, I'm I'm sitting talking to you from my brand new dad chair, which which we just bought for our living room. So my bottom is firmly ensconced in it. So that's new. <laughs> um, and there's this this other TV show that I'm sure you guys you want to talk about at some point called For All Mankind on a new streaming service called Apple TV Plus by this little known company I'm sure you've never heard of before called Apple. Um, so yeah, there's lots yeah. to talk about. So, like, you've been busy the last few years, huh? You've done uh, numerous TV show appearances between Chicago PD, Fire, um, the Fire uh, Show, also a House of Cards. You've done voiceover work. You've written a book. Have you slept at all? Jesus. <laughs> I do sleep. Uh, yeah, you know, the past couple of years have been, have been great. Um, interestingly, uh, in terms of, like, hours spent working, I probably haven't worked as much in the last, like three or four years as I did the, the previous like 20 years. So yeah. um, the, the, the difference is that now I do stuff that's a little more visible to people and the things that people recognize. But prior to this, I mean, I came up, you know, acting in obscurity basically and doing stuff that, you know, a very small number of people actually saw. So it's kind of cool to, to be in a position where I get to do stuff that people actually recognize and see and comment on and have thoughts about now. It's, mm. it's fun. So you're originally from Chicago, correct? I am. Yeah. Yep. Born and raised in, uh, in the Chicago suburbs and then moved to the city uh, as a grown-up. Yeah. How was it growing up there? It was good. I mean, I don't really have it much to compare it to. I had a much cushier uh, childhood than, than my dad did. Certainly, um, you know, my dad is, uh, uh, is off the boat from, from Greece. He came here when he was 16. Um, you know, he, he grew up in a very remote village in, in Greece. And then, uh, his mom sent him off to an orphanage because at the time there was a war going on and she didn't want him to be captured and like transported behind the iron curtain. So she sent him away. So, I mean, he's been through a lot. And then, you know, I grew up and I, I, you know, I got a Atari 2600 for Christmas and, yeah. you know, I was mad that it wasn't a ColecoVision or whatever. So I had a vastly different, um, upbringing than, than, you know, my dad. And I, I can't complain at all. Yeah. I, I certainly have had a very easy life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand completely. Like I said, you know, we spoke before we got on the air, how I'm Greek too. And I grew up in the old school Greek family thing. So I, would you, as soon as you said the video game thing, I was like, Oh my God, it's exactly like what happened to me. I, when my parents gave, my parents gave me an Atari and I wanted a Nintendo. We're always a few years behind on systems. Right, right. It's so funny. Now, so I am definitely. It doesn't sound like as Greek as you. Did you go to Greek school? Uh, I, um, no, because my parents speak fluent Greek, so I picked it up from them. And I also lived in Greece for four years when I was young. 
I was born oh, here. Yeah. I was born. Like super- I was born here, and we moved to Greece for a few years. All right. So you're a super Greek because, like, the my uh, knowledge of language uh, of, the, of the language is so limited. I could. I, I have to stop at like Galaktaburiko. I mean, that's that's <laughs> as far as I get. And uh, uh, but yeah, my my dad was very into. Um, you know, we're Americans. We speak English in the house, and so my older brothers did the Greek school thing, but I never, I, I never had to go. So yeah. I was kind of glad as a kid, not, you know, knowing that, that I could have been forced to have extra school on top of my regular school. But now looking back on it, I'm kind of bummed that, you know, I, I don't share that. Uh, I don't share the language or the, the knowledge of the history and all of that, like uh, with him, like you guys do. Yeah. You know, it sounds like you guys were super Greeks. Oh yeah. Oh so. yeah. Well, it's not too late. You could always download an app on your phone, and when you got some time to kill, you could always try to learn a few things. Right? There's definitely <laughs> an app for that now. I'm, uh, I'm sure. So yeah. So as a kid growing up, what were you? What were you into? Um, what was I into? You know, I I played soccer. I played piano. I spent a lot of time on stage because I could carry a tune. So like, I I kind of gravitated towards musicals. Um, which, you know, in, in the communities that I, I grew up in, there were just more opportunities for a, a kid who wanted to perform to do musicals rather than like straight plays. So I did a lot of that. Um, and, uh, I guess, and I, I did it always because I enjoyed it. Um, I never really thought that I would, you know, turn to performing as a, as a career or as a profession, just because. Uh, it just didn't seem possible. Uh, you know, I, I, I had heard about this thing called the starving artist and just assumed that that would be true for everybody. And mm. if you tried to, you know, make, make art your living, you would just be struggling all the time. And I think, you know, for some people that's definitely true. And, but for other people, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. So, um, when I got into college, um, I started off as a music major. I was like, Oh, I can I can sing. So I guess I'll do that. Cause I didn't really know what else to do. No. Um, but I always had this thing about being a doctor in, in the back of my mind. Uh, I went to school, my best friend, when I was little, he wanted to be a doctor. His dad was a brain surgeon. So like I grew up with him and sort of wanting with his influence, that family's influence. And I thought being a doctor would be cool. So I started off as a music major in college and then I switched over to, biology and um got all ready to go to medical school and just decided like i was overwhelmed with um like math and science classes and studying for the the med school entrance exam and stuff and i just i just needed a break and i was looking around for something else to do and i i found this this guy who taught people how to do voiceover work so i took voiceover lessons just as purely as a distraction wow and um I just found it and loved it. I sucked, but I was like, this is really interesting. I want to get better. And, uh, started doing voiceover work in college and that led to some on camera work and that led to other stuff. And before long, I was like a professional actor who got paid to say stuff. It was just a very weird progression that, that led me there. So, well, growing up, growing up also, was there like a specific movie or TV show that you enjoyed watching there at the same time? You're like, I might want to do this someday. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I'm a huge star Wars fan, a huge fan of the original movie from 77. And I, you know, spent a lot of time in my basement reenacting that trash compactor scene. Let me tell you, (laughs) um, 
I am definitely not alone. You know, people of that generation, we we all like, you know, had Star Wars plays in our garages and backyards and everything. So I would say that the first, my first exposure to something, you know, a film or something from pop culture that really made an impact was Star Wars. Yeah. And again, I never really thought of it as like, well, I could do that someday. It just spoke to me in such a way that just, you know, I wanted to be part of it. Um, but to this day, to, to, I tell you, it's like, the, it's the career highlight uh, and goal. The one thing that has not happened for me and that I keep striving for is I want to do a Star Wars movie <laughs> and it hasn't happened. So I, it definitely was long lasting, the impact that it had yeah. for sure. Well, the good thing you now there's going to be more new movies for Star Wars, and also you know we have the new show on Disney Plus, and they're going to be adding more shows to that too. So who knows? You never know. You could be in that Star Wars world. Dude, someday. there are there are no shortage of Star Wars opportunities for actors these days. Coming and up. I just like, I can you make a call? Can you please make a call, maybe, and and like arrange something? Because I don't know. I would just love to do that. I could like quit. I think after showing up in the Mandalorian or, or yeah. any of the star Wars movies, are you I don't know. It'd are be you, great. Are you planning to watch that? Are you? Yeah. Are you yeah. kidding? I, I was so excited because, um, I, I got an email from Disney somehow and was like, Hey, join Disney plus with a discount. So I've been signed up as a subscriber since I don't know, like August or yeah. something. And yeah. the reason I signed up was to be able to see that, see the Mandalorian. So I'm, I'm looking forward to starting it yeah. tonight. Um, and checking it out. Yeah, I'm we, sure it's going to be great. Me and my wife did the exact same thing. We signed up for that three-year deal because we have two young kids and they love Disney. Yeah. I mean, it's it, Disney knows what they're doing. Oh, you know, yeah. they We've got two little boys and we are, you know, hardcore. When they were like four years old, five years old, we were hardcore Cars fans. You know, I think that's like the single greatest movie for four-year-old boys. Um and then as they got older, we kind of transitioned into the, into the planes universe. And, you know, we're just, we're Disney fans. Uh, they just know how to do entertainment for kids really well. So yeah, we're super excited for Disney plus. So how, um, how long ago was it before you decided you, you packed your bags? You're like, okay, next, next thing I move it to LA. <laughs> well, my friend, that was not an easy decision to make. And one that was probably, a good decade in the making. Um, we moved to LA about four years ago, but we talked about it for a long time. And really what, what did it for me for what kind of gave us the push was, uh, my wife and I, you know, we, we've been married and we got pregnant with twins. And when that happened, we knew we wanted to stay in Chicago because that's where our support system was. At the time, you know, my, my acting and voiceover career was really humming along there. I had a lot of repeat business. I had been in the market for a long time, and, and people knew me as someone who they could count on. So, you know, life was good. It, work was easy. It was just happening, and it's hard to uproot that. Um, and then our, our boys, we were coming up to this, this big decision with what to do about school. And we lived in the city, and... Um, you know, our boys were going to go into kindergarten because they're twins. And and we were like looking at our neighborhood school in, in the city of Chicago and not really thinking that was the place we wanted to be. So it was like, do we move to the suburbs or do we just go ahead and rip the bandaid off and move to L.A.? Because we've been talking about it for so long. So there was like family considerations and career considerations and stuff. But at the end of the day, 
it really made the most sense to move from a, a longevity standpoint because as an actor, you know, you really do have to be not necessarily where the production is, but you have to be where the casting is if you want to move sort of onward and upward in your career. Um, there are plenty of people who will stay in Chicago or Atlanta or Toronto or a smaller market and do just fine and be co- totally happy with that. I was totally happy with that for almost 20 years. Uh, but there does come a point where you have to kind of pick, you know, do you want to do what's available just in your local market or do you want to have access to bigger and, and other things, broader things? And for me, that was the answer to that was yes. And the place to to get access to that was LA. So that was what was behind the move. So, uh, and while you're in Chicago, you, that's because that's where a Chicago PDNFD film, correct? Correct. Yeah. They do everything there locally in Chicago. So that's where I, where I first landed on that show. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your time on that show. Um, so that show was, uh, definitely a turning point for me career wise. Um, I got the job on a, on a regular audition, just like any other audition. And it was originally booked as a two episode guest star arc. Um, and I went, I, I did my two episodes and I went home and I figured that was the end of it. And that was right around the time when we were thinking about, you know, do we move to LA or do we stay in Chicago, blah, blah, blah. And that was in, I believe season two of the show. And we made plans to move to L.A. in between season two and three. So season three came around and about like we were two weeks away from the moving moving truck showing up at our house. When I got a call that was that said, hey, they've got four more episodes in season three for you. And I was like, well, uh oh, I'm not going to be here. So we had to work out you know, some kind of deal where, you know, we, we, I travel back from LA and they were open to that. Um, and those, so we moved and (laughs) I, you know, we moved the family out and then I spent a a good portion of the first six months, you know, flying back and forth because those, those two, those four additional episodes turned into even more that year and then even more the following season. So it was strange how that happened. Uh, but I just learned so much on that set. The, uh, um, the set is, is very tight. Um, the, the cast at least was at that time when I was there. Um, and really, you know, uh, I learned a lot from the directors, the rotating directors that came through, uh, Mark Tinker, who was uh, one of the executive producers and the, and the directing producer on that show, um, is the one who hired me and, and really taught me a lot about you know, where to, how to be on a, on a TV set, you know, how loudly to speak and, you know, where, who to pay attention to and, um, and all of that. So it was, it was a great experience professionally. I made some good friends. Um, and I really got to, you know, kind of know the, the, the cast is sort of an extended family. So it was, it was great. I have nothing but, but really warm and fuzzy feelings about Chicago PD. Mm-hmm. And now you star on Apple TV Plus's For All Mankind. Yeah, yeah. This opportunity came along, and it's um, uh, it's quite an honor to not only be on one of the first shows on, on one of Apple's you know new endeavors in their streaming service, but also to play such a, a national hero, uh, Buzz Aldrin, who you know second man to walk on the moon and. 
to learn all about him. It's really been a great experience. For the listeners that haven't uh, heard about the show or seen the show yet, can you like, without spoiling, can you tell the listeners what it's about? Yeah, um, it's an alt history piece that, strangely enough, does not take a dystopian view of the alt history. So we start off uh, the show historically correct, and uh, our showrunner, Ron Moore, who developed uh, Battlestar Galactica and is behind Outlanders on Stars, if you're familiar with those shows, um, he wondered what would today's world be like if the Russians had landed on the moon first instead of the U.S. And so the, the first episode starts off, you know, with um, the U.S. sort of being blindsided by the fact that a Russian cosmonaut actually got there first. Uh, they didn't think it was coming. They didn't know it was coming. And they were like, well, crap, now what? What are we going to do? Hmm. And they decide to push ahead with their effort. Um, and what that does is it, it motivates Nixon, who was president at the time, to really push for the U.S. to gain back that um, uh, that prestige of, of being number one in, in the space race. And so he says, give NASA whatever they need to we're going to go and we're going to do more. We're going to learn more and accomplish more than the Russians. We're going to beat them at everything, which I think is a really interesting premise for a show, because, you know, you can talk about a lot of different things. You can talk about the technological advancements that might have been made. Uh, you can talk about the cultural advancements that might have been made. Um and it impacts a lot of things. You know, once you start changing history, you start this domino effect. Um, so the first, the whole first season is set between figure 1969 and 1979 or so. Yeah. And um, as NASA really tries to, to push the envelope in terms of what they can do, all, all in the name of being first. Yeah. How, how did you get approached for the role? And tell us about your audition. Yeah, the audition was um, really interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, actors are, are always given scenes from, from the whole project. We're not always given the entire thing. And that was the case this time. I wasn't given the entire script, but I was given a couple of scenes. And one of them was sort of your standard kind of character-driven relationship scene where we saw Buzz interacting with someone. That was pretty standard. But the other one was like the last, 35 or 45 seconds of the moon landing flight. Yeah. And so it was very heavy in terms of jargon. It was all like astronaut speak. And as I was reading it, I was like, it all seemed very plausible. Like it was actually said it was very real. So I was like, I wonder how much of this was lifted or, or inspired by the actual events. I knew it was an alt history piece. So I went to YouTube and I found the audio of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And I, I listened to the last few minutes of it, and sure enough, a bunch of the acronyms and phrases and terminology showed up in, in the script, and, and it, was, it was the real thing. So I'm like, okay, now I knew that whoever would, had written this, when they were going to be watching the auditions, I had to sell the fact that I could handle the astronaut speak and all the jargon and stuff. So what I did was I did my best to kind of emulate the audio of the real mission and kind of pick that up and drop it into the scene as it was written. And, you know, that was my strategy. And by God, wouldn't you believe it worked? Hmm. Um, I must have sounded like I knew what I was talking about. So 
that was the audition. Um, and in pretty short order, you know, it's, it's a couple of weeks later, I, I got a phone call that I was, you know, top choice of everybody involved, which just kind of blew me away. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be able to strap on a spacesuit and <laughs> go to the moon. And it's going to be the most fun I've ever had on a show. And it was. It was like such a great time, such such a an honor to be able to do it. Do, do you feel any did you feel any pressure playing, you know, such like an iconic figure? Yeah, man. I mean, there's, it's one thing to like play a historical figure. Yeah. Uh, it's another thing to play a historical figure who is still around to see your performance. Um, so my goal was to just be as accurate as possible. I had to do justice to the story that was being told on the page, but I also had to be as accurate as I could be and play buzz in a way that made sense for the buzz who was, in front of all the cameras during the Apollo era, because he lived a very public life. I don't think by choice, I don't think he signed up to be a public persona. He signed up to be an astronaut, but that resulted in him being filled, uh, you know, endlessly, both during the mission, mission, you know, before it and after it. So there was no shortage of film to watch. And um, so, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of pressure. The, The only thing that kind of lifted the pressure a little bit was the fact that, you know, this is not the show is not a biopic on Buzz. It's yeah. not like I had to pull a Rami Malek and, you know, and be Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Um, so the focus isn't necessarily on him, but it definitely I had I had a lot of motivation to make sure I got everything correct. I got it right. So I hope I hope that comes across. Mm. And I hope when Buzz sees it and I, I hope to God he does, you know, he doesn't wrinkle his nose at it. Mm. So. So you've had no interaction with Buzz himself. No, I, you know, he wasn't involved in the development of the show, so I didn't have uh, any interaction with him. I did, however, through the course of doing the show, I, I was able to form some friendships with some former NASA folks, and a couple of me sort of put him in touch with them. Um, so he and I did exchange a couple of emails. He, he seems very cordial, very, you know, he was very welcoming. Ultimately, I haven't met him. I would love to meet him sometime. Yeah. Buzz, if you're listening, give me a call, shoot me a note. I would love that. But, um, yeah, I, I wasn't able to, to hook up with him for the prep of the show. Uh, how awesome was it putting a spacesuit on? How did it make you feel? I, can I just say that when I got word that I was going to be able to do this, the single most exciting thing about this news was the, was the fact that I was going to get to put on the suit. That was honestly the best thing about it. I was so excited. And at the fitting, you can ask my wife, I was like a little kid, like right before going to the fitting. I knew I was going to be able to, you know, strap the suit on. Uh, and it was just everything that I thought it was going to be um, until I actually had to work in the thing. And then it became a lot less exciting because these suits are as close to the real thing as we could possibly get. They are built by the guy who his dad, the guy who built them, his father actually worked for NASA. So NASA, he was able to get the plans for him. And so like all the seams are correct and the pocket placements, everything is, is correct. And the originals had like 23 some odd layers of fabric. Ours had seven. And that added up to about, about 55 or 60 pounds worth of, of suit that you had to strap on. And what's more is when, when you put all the, the stuff on, you put the boots and the helmet, and the gloves, it's a fully sealed system. So you can't breathe in it. And so it's functional. The, the vents at the front 
are actually they actually receive air hoses that pump air into the the suit. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to breathe in it. Um, so you you put the thing on and it weighs a ton, and you've got the whooshing of air as it's being recycled and pumped in and pumped out. So it's loud. And, you know, you put on the Snoopy cap, which is the thing that holds the, the two microphones that sit in, in front. It's like the undergarment before you put the helmet on. So the Snoopy caps have ear, we, they had to have earpieces in them so that we could hear other actors and the director giving us directions and stuff. And those things didn't always work the right way. So like you couldn't see any, you couldn't hear anything. You could hardly see anything because the, the helmets would fog up all the time. And it was just like a monster dealing with these suits. And then, you know, on top of it all, you got to act like you got to remember lines and your eyes have to be in the right place on certain lines. And you have to be in relationship with the other actor in your scene. And we were both, you know, Jeff Branson, God bless him, the guy who played um, plays Neil Armstrong. And I we, we did a bunch of work in the suits together. And he, he, he and I would just look at each other like, how the hell are we going to do this? Like, this is going to look terrible, you know, but. In the end, you know, we saw it. Stuff just looks so great. Uh, somehow we were able to pull it off. Wow. Um, and, you know, and what it comes down to is you, you just got to make your peace with the suit, you know, and, and do the work. So it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of, uh, took some getting used to for sure. Yeah. How many months uh, did you film the show? I think it took about uh, five or six months wow. to shoot because we started shooting in, early August of 2018, or I'm sorry. Yeah. 2018. And we wrapped in like late February or so, maybe early March. So something like that. It was a long time. Wow. Now you recently also wrote a book about breaking into the voiceover work. Like how, what pushed you to this and what made you decide you wanted to write a book? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, basically I wrote the voiceover startup guide because people just always ask me, how do I get into voiceover? And, um, I had done this before, you know, being from Chicago and working in Chicago for the 20 years, almost, I wrote a book called acting in Chicago, which is for Midwest based actors and how they can have a career. So I had already done it once. And I decided that, you know, looking at the landscape of, of voiceover resources, not only did I have a bunch of people asking the same question, but I also saw that what was out there really varied quite a bit. Um, everybody, all the voiceover books and, and a lot of the voiceover resources that are available online is like written by people who have done well, but it's like the only book it's written as the only book they've ever written in their life. Um, so it's like an encyclopedia soup to nuts type of thing. And I just felt like there was probably, a, you know, room for a brief, very concise, yet very complete guide to just getting started, like the, the voiceover 101 type of questions, because that seems to be where people get started. It's like, or they get stuck, you know, with those basic questions, like, how do I even get started? What equipment do I need? How do I get work? Blah, blah, blah. And all that could be answered in, you know, just in pretty short order. Um, so I decided that there was, you know, uh, there was a need for it. And, um, you know, I've, I've been working as a voice talent for so long that I had something to say about it. So I just sat down one day and banged out something that I thought might be a series of blog posts, but then it turned into a book. 
Um, and then we came up with the idea of, you know, well, you can't really learn voiceover from a book because you got to be able to hear what's taught, what we're talking about. So in addition to the book, there are audio files that are associated with the book. So you buy the book. There's a ton of um, scripts and examples in the book. If you want to hear what's being taught, you go to our website, which is complete-voiceover.com, and you download the audio files associated with the book. And boom, it's sort of like being in a voiceover class, but not really being in a class. It's, mm. you know, you're, you're, you've got a book and, and audio files to go along with it. So there's kind of a, a little bit of a step up. Mm. So it's, it's fun. Thanks for asking about it. So what kind of advice would you give to somebody that wants to break into the field of either acting or voiceover acting? Well, they're, they're two different beasts a little bit. Um, I would say the, the one piece of advice I could give for anyone who wants to do either is that you have to be in it for the long haul. Um, and you have to be open to learning new things like forever, because I mistakenly believe that, you know, once I learned how to do it, quote unquote, whatever that is, voiceover, like commercials or acting in TV or drama or comedy or whatever. Once I learned how to do it, I was kind of done and I could just go do it. And I found that that's just not true. You know, there's always opportunities uh, to, to learn new things because times change culture and, and tastes change. And you really do have to be in it for the, the long haul and willing to change along with it. Otherwise you just won't, you know, stay busy or stay relevant. Mm -hmm. So, it's kind of a never ending opportunity to uh, get better. And I, I really didn't know it was like that until I had, I kind of got to a point where I was like, all right, I'm, I'm at a certain stage where, you know, I, I've done a lot of things that I want to do. And I guess I'm here. I guess I've, I've reached, you know, whatever point I thought I was going to be at, <laughs> but I was like, okay, well, if I have to move, if I want to move up, I have to learn new things. So it's, it's, it's a constant learning process. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that really helps, but that, that was something that, that really surprised me as I got older and did this longer. Mm. Like even, even people that I look up to, you know, and performers who I think are way beyond my, you know, where I'm at, they're still in class. Like they're still coaching with people. Wow. So it's, it's always, the, the learning is all ongoing, yeah. you know. Who are, who are some of the people that you look up to? Oh, gosh. Um, I really love Michael Kelly, uh, who, you know, played Doug Stamper on House of Cards for six seasons. Um, I, I really love Mahershal, Mahershal Ali, I, which is so funny that, I mean, he did a whole season on House of Cards as well. Um, these guys who, like, make what they do look so gosh darn easy. They just amaze me, you know? And I think it was De Niro. I heard uh, an interview with him and somebody asked him, you know, like, what do you, what advice do you give new actors? And I think his advice, I'm going to butcher it. Of course. I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something along the lines of, you don't have to do too much. If you try too hard, it comes off looking like you're trying and then it's not real anymore. And so these actors who have really, you know, mastered the art of not trying hard at all, even though inside, you know, like they're 
they have plotted out and planned out every move they make, right? And they've done all their research and all their planning. But when they when they execute, it's like they're not even they're not doing anything. They're like just occupying the space that the story's telling. I, they're just so good at that. I don't feel yeah. like I I figured that out yet. So mm-hmm. I I um I really ma- admire people who can do that, and that's kind of what I what I aim to shoot for. Uh, Jason Bateman and Ozark. Oh my God. Oh my God. Jason Bateman and Ozark is like a, it's a, it's a masterclass in acting. It's brilliant that everybody on that show is amazing, you know? And that's, what's really exciting about like the environment we're in now is, is the quality of the work that out there, but you know, by all means, not every show rises up to that level, but sometimes I watch shows and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize we could get that good. And yet here we are, I'm watching it, you know? So it's, it's cool. Uh, so where do you see yourself 10, 20 years from now? Well, I would love to be a series regular on a show that does well, that's well-respected, that people like and are interested in. I would, that, that's like if I could reach that point, I think I would be, I would be very happy. I'd love to have, you know, as actors, the, the challenge for us is always finding something regular, you know, always having work come in. And it's funny because you, you know, the names we know, those guys are always busy. They're yeah. in demand. The names you don't know who are, who are, you know, kind of journeyman actors, working class actors who they do a guest star here or there, recurring guest star or whatever. Um, those guys are always looking for their next job. And that's where I'm at. So where I would love to be is, is to the point where my next job comes and finds me <laughs> yeah. instead of me having to go out and find it, you know, yeah. um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would imagine that 10 years from now, I'll probably be do, doing the same thing. Although I wonder how we'll be doing it because, you know, look how, how much things have changed in the last 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, nobody talked about binge watching anything. I know. And today, you know, that's how we consume TV shows. I know. So I, I wonder what that means for the production of TV going forward, because it takes a damn long time to make shows like for all mankind, you know, we were basically making a movie every two weeks and that's just so difficult to do. It's expensive. It takes thousands of man hours and tons of effort. And I wonder like, what is it going to be like in 10 years? How are we going to streamline that process Mm -hmm. to be able to fill the appetite of, of viewers who fully expect to digest an entire season of a show in a weekend? Yeah. Uh, I don't have the answer to that question, but it's interesting to think about. And you mentioned binge watching. Uh, you heard how Disney Plus is not releasing; they're re- they're releasing episodes weekly. They're not doing the whole binge watching thing. I know. Which isn't it funny how and people are upset about it. Like when... people are upset. It's funny. I don't mean to cut you off, but it's like people are like upset about it. And, no, I, t- and, I, and I tell my wife, like, you know what? I kind of like it like this because we binge watch so much other things that after you're done watching you're like, now I can't wait. I have to wait another year for this to come back. At least you can, See, you, that, you can enjoy it. So exactly. Okay. So I, I was thinking about this the other day. Cause somebody asked me, do you binge watch stuff? And the answer is yes, but I do so kind of grudgingly. Like in our house, we'll watch one episode a night until the season's over. And so that stretches it out like two weeks. But yeah. I remember what it used to be like when you had to watch everything on Thursday night, you know? And what it was, was it was a routine. 
And I, I settled, you know, I, we were in the routine of we watch this on Wednesday, this on Sunday, whatever. And for me, the characters, the storylines, that became part of my daily life, my routine. And I enjoyed that. And that was, there was comfort in that. And then we started moving into this, you know, this binge watching thing, which I do. But it, for me, it was kind of like kicking and screaming. So I think it's cool that Apple TV Plus has, you know, dropped the first three episodes of our show, but now is doling them out every week. Yeah. Same thing with Disney Plus. I think it's cool that, you know, for those of us who don't mind that schedule, we get to go back to that, you know. Um, so I'm okay with it. I'm like you. I'm, especially, especially if you have kids. We're always busy. Yeah, especially if you have kids. Are you kidding? I I think it's going to be neat to be like, ooh, it's Friday. The next episode of The Mandalorian is coming out. We can't wait, you know? I, yep. I think it'll be something to look forward to. Exactly, exactly. Chris, uh, how yeah. can the listeners uh, find you on social media? Uh, well, they can look me up on Twitter and Instagram, both with the same handle. I'm at Chris Agos, A-G-O-S. Um if you're interested in voiceover, you can hit up complete-voiceover.com. If you happen to be interested in uh, learning more about acting in the Chicago market, you can visit actinginchicago.com. Um, come say hi. All right, Chris. Thanks for coming on. This was fun. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, for asking, and I had a great time chatting with you. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. 